have a right view of you. We are blessed to perceive the immeasurable weight of your glory, your holiness and your goodness and all of your perfections. God, we are undone. We are thankful for the fact that Christ has paid our debt and has made it possible again to have fellowship with you, secured our position and our place before you in righteousness, our standing before you as one that can never change in that way because it's fixed and based upon the completed and the finished work of Christ, not based upon our own goodness, our own merits, our own effort, but based upon His, and we are so thankful for that. Father, help us today as we again turn to Your Word, Your Word that has been divinely inspired by You and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So equip us today, Lord, to, to, do, your, to do your works here, to, to worship you rightly. May it start there. May what it is that happens today, Father, be first and foremost be a realigning of our hearts and our desires and our affections to, to love you with all that we have and to worship you in truth, in spirit and in truth. And then the, watch <clears throat> the rest of our lives, Lord, grow and be changed as we, as we set that in our lives first. So we thank you for today and for this time, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's jumping back into Romans. Um, we are embarking on a section of Scripture in Romans, which is probably very familiar to many of you. And as you know, I've said before many times, familiarity tends to breed laziness. And so it's my prayer that as we get into these passages again this morning, that we would be just struck very deeply and in awe of what it is that God has communicated to us and the great privilege that we have in coming together and worshiping Him. Let me just say up front at the beginning, and just by way of reminder, that everything that we learn as we embark and we read through Scripture, everything that we learn, and especially as we get into passages today where we want to talk about some specific attributes of God as He is addressed in verse 23 of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, and God is described as the immortal God. And when we get there, we want to consider particular aspects regarding God's character and how Scripture calls Him and defines Him as being immortal. But all of this, the point of all of this is so that we might rightly know God, and in knowing God rightly, we might fully worship God appropriately. At the end of the day, this is never just about learning more information about what it is that the Bible says. It is always about realigning the heart to be in a proper place of worship to Him. And I don't know, and I, I, I firmly believe this, I don't know of anything else that rightly realigns 
the heart of an individual to worship God fully and, and joyfully and appropriately like the glory of God does. I'm firmly convinced that the greatest thing that any Christian can do is to pursue a clear picture and vision of the glory of God as the Bible reveals God and as He presents Himself in Scripture. Because when we do that, then we know Him for who He is as He has revealed Himself in the Word. We, we can come up with so many different ways of imagining God and who He is. And many of them, at the end of the day, are just fashioning God into an idol of who, he, who we want Him to be. And we, we have to avoid that tendency within us to do that. What we must do is to see how the Scriptures speak of God, present God in His entirety, in His fullness, and be in awe of Him and love Him with all that we have, in, in essence, to rightly worship Him. And that's what's at stake this morning. That's what's at stake every morning is appropriate worship and fullness of worship of God as we get into our passage this morning. We're going to jump back into Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I don't know if I've shared this quote with you. I heard it a couple months ago, and I think it's fitting as we get into this passage here. But I heard someone say that in the beginning, God created man in his image. And ever since then, we have done a really good job of trying to create God in ours. And I think that that's very fitting and appropriate as we get to the text today, especially as we come to verses 22 and 23, is that we um, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images representing man birds and animals and other creeping things. And how does this exchange of this immortal, eternally glorious, wonderful, magnificent God take place? How does, how does man like ever even get to the point of doing that? Um, we want to talk about that this morning. So our text, um, Paul assumes just that the fall has taken place, and so he's operating from the standpoint that, there, that, that we have fallen into sin, that we are steeped in ungodliness and unrighteousness, and he's working his way out from there. Two Sundays ago, Craig taught on verses 16 and 17 that God's righteousness is revealed through the gospel. That's part of the reason why he's eager to preach the gospel. Today, we see how he talks about God's wrath is revealed through creation. And, and it's really Paul's argument is still, uh, the argument that he made in verses 13 and 15 of chapter 1 is still propelling him forward. I want you to know, brothers, as he says in verse 13, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so Paul is eager to come to them. He's eager to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. And on the other hand, God's wrath is revealed from all of creation. And his goal is, is he is very well aware, as I said last week, of the spiritual liveliness in nature of mankind. My, mankind is alive and well spiritually even after the fall. The problem is that we are worshiping, spiritually worshiping things that are not God. And so the, through the preaching of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed that mankind might then rightly worship God and abandon all other forms of idolatry and worship. 
And what we see today is that the wrath of God is being revealed throughout creation. And if that's the case, then God is given ample, it's like he has an entire chorus of all of creation that's proclaiming his wrath that's being revealed. He has ample testimony regarding his wrath towards ungodliness that is being revealed towards mankind. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 together, and then we'll work our way through it. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And next week we'll get into, Lord willing, the repercussions of making that exchange. But as our sermon title says today, the title is The Weight of Glory. And I believe that the greatest thing that anybody can do, especially the believer, is to feel and to be in awe of and to experience the weightiness of the glory of God. It's when you see and you experience the, the weight of the glory of God and how Scripture speaks, how, how does God feel about His own glory and how he's jealous for his glory and will not share it with anybody or anything. And you begin to think through and understand the, the ramifications of if God feels that way about his own immensity and his own glory and majesty, then certainly I should feel that way. I should feel, I should welcome, I should invite, I should pursue the weightiness of the glory of God and allow that to impress upon me and impact me in such a way that it, it facilitates genuine, heartfelt, joyful worship for God, especially as I see his glory and I see the, the extent and the love and the care that he has shown for me specifically in his son. We should pursue that, and that's what I pray happens for us this morning. Verses 18 through 20, we see a bit of a pattern in the ESV. If you have the ESV, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21 all begin with the, ver all begin with the word for. In verses 18 and 19, they're linked together. In verses 20 and 21, they're linked together. And the for in verse 18 could also be read as an indeed. And the, and the four in verse 19 can be read as a because. And again, then it repeats itself. The four in verse 20 can be read as an indeed. And the four in verse 21 can be read as a because. And we'll see Paul's argument as he's linking these things together. Verse 18, four, or indeed, 
with certainty, he's saying that you may know the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed. I don't know about you. I don't know when you hear the word wrath, what is the mental picture that pops into your head? I think for a lot of people, when you think about or you hear about the wrath of God, it's like this divine volcano where God just gets to a point where he's like, that's it, I'm done, and everything in its path is destroyed. And because really when we practice wrath, that's kind of how it is. But God's wrath is not like that. It is an anger and it is a fury. Make no mistake about that. But it's, it's not an emotional outburst by God. It is a controlled anger. It's a settled anger. It's an opposition. It's actually a disposition toward what the beholders, beholder considers wrong. And in this case, it's God and that what he considers wrong towards sin. And in his wrath, it's not this explosion of uncontrolled emotional anger, this outburst. It's, it's a controlled anger, and it's a display of his disapproval on what he sees as being wrong, and that is sin that's taking place among mankind. And it's being, and our passage says that it's being revealed, which is in the present tense, which means that God's wrath is continuously, and it's always being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those things that are directly opposite of God. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, as opposed to godliness and righteousness. The very things that compose God's nature and character, godliness and righteousness, His wrath is revealed against those things that are directly opposite of Him and His character, which should make us think and consider the fact that all conduct really is measured against this standard. Is it in line with God's character or not? Is what it is that we're thinking? Is what it is that we're doing? Is it in line with God's character? Is it in line with righteousness and godliness? Or is it in line with unrighteousness and ungodliness? Because really, those are the two choices that we have. His wrath is being revealed consistently against unrighteousness and ungodliness of people who suppress the truth. And again, that word suppress is in the present tense. People are holding back. People who are stuffing or ignoring what it is that they know to be true. The wrath of God is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness currently are suppressing the truth. As men, as the righteousness of God is going forth, being spoken forth, as we read earlier in Psalm 19, as we'll see again in some other passages, Sinful man, because of the fall, is in the habit of taking the truth about God and suppressing it. As God speaks and reveals, mankind receives and suppresses because of our sin, because we do not want to acknowledge God, to think about his presence and his reality, because that means that we have to think about who he is. And then we've got to deal with the fact that um, we're now speaking about one who is 
immortal, as our passage says, which we'll get to. So by unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And what is the truth that they suppress? Specifically, it says in verse 19, the truth that they are suppressing is what can be known about God because God has made it plain to them and shown it to them. God has shown it. He has manifested it. He has revealed. He has made clear certain things about himself. And verse 20 tells us specifically what two of those things are. So the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men are taking that. They're suppressing the truth, the truth about who God is and what God has made plain to them because God has shown it to them. It's clear. He'll go on and say in verse 20, as we will read, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Paul is making it, he, he, he's making it very clear that mankind perceives, clearly perceives what God has made plain through creation about himself. Every single individual walks outside. If you lift your eyes and you look to the clouds, you look around and you see the trees, you see the hills, you consider the, the, the small things that God has made and the flowers and the bees and all that God has created, and all of them are pouring forth speech, right? Psalm 19 says that there is no language in which they are not heard. As God pours forth the speech regarding his, his character, and his wrath is being poured forth as well. And man is receiving that truth, suppressing it. Because these things have been made clear, they've made, been made plain, they are clearly perceived. And these are two of the things that he mentions, his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Indeed, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, this is what it is that has been revealed by God through creation. And if you consider, consider, these, consider this for a moment. The wrath of God is revealed through creation, but also through creation, God's eternal power and his divine nature have been revealed. So what kind of wrath is it that is being revealed through creation? If God, if, if, if at least th these two components of God is being revealed, his eternal power and his divine nature are revealed from, through creation, then we must also uh, uh, suppose that the wrath that is coming from him is also eternal and divine as well. If God is described as being eternal in power and divine in nature, what kind of wrath is being revealed from creation? This slight frustration a slight irritability by God? No, a, a, a wrath that is, if, it is, if the wrath is proceeding from one who is eternal in power and divine in nature, then his wrath is eternal and divine as well. And what kind of wrath and anger and indignation towards sin do we think that that's going to be and what is it going to look like? This helps us understand why, for, on one hand, why hell is eternal. 
and why it's spoken of in Scripture as being so, such an awful thing. Because it proceeds from one who is eternal and divine. And it's being poured out on that which is the opposite of his godliness and his righteousness and his character. We see that his eternal power, namely his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so it gives mankind, there's, there's no excuse. Everybody has access to seeing what it is that God has created. And everybody then is, has this testimony regarding God's wrath, His eternal power, and His divine nature. Through creation, God's creation is proclaiming these things. And this is nothing new. It's not as if Paul is making up some new things. We see in Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That, that even David himself wrote of the fact that all of the earth should fear the Lord, that all of the world should stand in awe of Him. Why? Simply because He has the power to speak things into existence. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That there's nobody like Him. And then again, we see it in Psalm 96, 97 verse 6. The heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. That God has made it very, very clear and has an abundant testimony through creation regarding His glory, regarding His power, and that all mankind is held accountable to what it is that they are hearing and seeing, regardless of whether or not they are listening, regardless of whether or not they're paying attention, regardless of whether or not they are taking what they are hearing and receiving and suppressing it. Everybody has heard. Everybody has seen and Paul will go on in Romans, here in just a few verses, to say that everybody, because of that, knows God to a particular degree. And because of that, they are held without excuse. And we see here in verse 21, why or what it is they are held without excuse for not doing for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God and they are, because of that, they are without excuse. They are without excuse for not honoring Him and they are without excuse for not giving thanks to Him. At least those two things that when we look out at creation, believer or non-believer, that this isn't talking about, Paul's not making a case for salvation. He's not saying that through general revelation that one can be saved. He's just saying that through general revelation, everybody knows without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God. There is no true atheist, not according to Scripture, 
You talk to somebody and they say, I'm an atheist. All they're really doing is saying, I'm very good at suppressing what I don't want to face up to. They know it to be true, but they're suppressing the truth of what God has revealed regarding himself through creation because they don't want to face up to these facts. They don't want to do what creation draws them and calls them to do, and that's to honor him and give him thanks. So believer or non-believer, you still need the special revelation. You still need, right, the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is the righteous shall live by faith. So it's only through the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, that God's righteousness is revealed and and the gift of faith is imparted so then those who have the gift of faith can live a life of faith. He's making the argument that all of mankind has seen these invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, and these things should at least be garnering honor and thanksgiving to him. Now imagine if we lived in a society where everybody honored God and gave thanks to him. I'm not saying, I'm not saying let's imagine a society where everybody's a Christian. I'm saying if we lived in a society where what our passage is saying should be happening actually happened, right? God's wrath is revealed from creation, and the normal, natural response of that should be, Paul is, the point he's making is that everybody should at least be honoring God and giving thanks to God as him being God, not, not even being saved. Imagine if we lived in a society where what was revealed about God through creation was actually being lived out and taken place. I mean, we, our, our culture would be completely different. If people actually walked around, imagine if everybody, everywhere you went across the entire globe actually honored God and gave thanks to God for who he is and what he, what he has done. That's not even Christian. That's just human Like, human beings should be doing this. How different would our world be? But our world isn't even close to that. Okay, so now we begin to see how active the suppression of the truth of God's character really is and how how powerful and strong it is. Because we live in a culture where, well, if you were at Sunday school, you have an idea. If you're watching the news or you're opening up your eyes and you're just looking around, you have an idea. How do these things, how do we get to where we are and how can such atrocious evils be committed against people? Because they are actively in the nature of sin is to suppress what can be known about God. It's clearly, he's, you just read the text, it's plain, it's clearly perceived. And he says to a degree that they knew God, everybody knows God to a degree, not again, not in a saving way, but in a way where it should garner honor and thanksgiving. And and it should, that should remind us how central these two things are 
to every single human being, but especially to the believer, to honor God and give thanks to God. I mean, we are people that actually do have our eyes opened to his glory and to his majesty, to his righteousness and his loving kindness and all of these things. We are the people that are put in the best position of all people to honor him and give thanks to him. And so I wonder, man, like is honoring God and being thankful to God really that central to who I am as a, as a believer? Do I honor God? Do I revere him? Do I, you know, when scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, this is honoring him is in line with that. Do I honor him? Do I fear him? Do I revere him? Am I thankful to him? Am I thankful to him for what it is that he, for who he is? being eternal in power and divine in nature. And then I think about those things, and I think this one who's eternal and, and divine is actually like, then I think about all the other passages of Scripture that describes the way that he cares for me and, and loves me, and I think that's just, it's too much. It's too good. You think about him being that way and the goodness of the gospel that he gives to us in Christ, and it's just, it's too good. Why I should be I should be just super thankful all the time for who God is and what He's done. But they did not they they did not honor God and give thanks to Him. And this is what happened: they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They have no excuse for not honoring Him are given thanks, and on the other hand, what happens is they become futile, foolish, and darkened. And this is the result of suppressing the truth. And then verses 22 and 23 really get to the crux of what the real problem and the issue is. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. They're, they're actively, willingly, knowingly, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Not only is that that the height of folly, it's an atrocity to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, replicas, shadows and types of men and birds and animals and things that creep on the ground. You got to remember, Wayne taught on Psalm 36 while I was gone, and Psalm 36, 1 says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Therefore, there is no fear of God before his eyes. This is how wickedness works. It work, transgression works with deep within the heart. And this is how this exchange happens. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for, for anything, just as long as it's not God. Images of, it, Satan's like, I don't care. Images of men, birds, dogs, cows, snakes, I don't care what it is, just as long as you make the exchange. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for anything else. 
This is why I'm saying the weight of glory. We need to fight and we need to pursue the, the weight, the immeasurable weightiness of the glory of God. And when you do and you grasp it and you see it, there's, you would say, there is no way I'm trading this in for anything in the world. There is nothing like the immeasurable, vast glory and majesty of God that can be even, there's not even a close second And when you feel and you experience the weight of that glory, then now your heart is set free to worship. See, it's not about amassing and accumulating theological and doctrinal terms and ideas and definitions. It's about actually beholding it and being changed by it and being set free to worship God joyfully and freely because of it. Mankind exchanges the glory of the immortal God. I, I was thinking of Second uh, Corinthians four four, and how Paul writes um, regarding the work of Satan, specifically in this way. Second Corinthians four four, Paul would write in their case that those who don't believe. The God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That the the work of the enemy is intentionally and purposefully blinding people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Just don't let them see the glory of Christ, because if they see it and they catch a glimpse of it, they're going to want more of it. You can't let that happen. There is something so awe-inspiring and attractive about the glory of God that when you get a taste of it and you see it, you want more of it and you pursue it, and the enemy is like, we can't have any of that. Get them to pursue the glory of money. Get them to pursue the glory of power, of position, of being a great parent, of being a great pastor, of being a great anything. Just get them to pursue the glory of something, anything else other than the glory of Christ. And so as churches, man, like we got to be on that you got to be fighting against it. you got to be pursuing it. you got to be preaching on it. you got to be praying it. It's got to be in all your ministries. That way, as individual people, we're motivated by it and we're reminded of it. And we're saying, yes, i got to do this. This is like what my life has to be about. Pursuing the glory of God isn't just something that I do like on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights or just when I'm reading my Bible. Pursuit of the glory of God is a lifelong, all-person endeavor. And see and feel the weight of the glory of God, you are the you are the most freed and joyful and loving and compassionate Christ-like person you can be. I think it's helpful for us to consider briefly, as he is described, God is specifically described here as being immortal, indestructible, imperishable, incorruptible. For us to consider a few of his attributes that I think would then help us to be convinced of how wrong and asinine this exchange is, 
and then to help prevent us from doing it as well. You think about a couple of these might not be very familiar to you, but have long throughout church history been promoted and taught and defended from the Scriptures, the first of which is God's divine simplicity. Not to say that God is just, you know, a simple being, but God's divine simplicity as we're considering His immortality, His incorruptibleness, His indestructibility. Divine simplicity tells us that God is not composed of parts, that God is pure and actual being that he can never be any less than who he always is, and that he is never, he is never um, growing or changing or there's nothing ever being added to him, not in his character, not in his knowledge, not in anything. George Swinnock says that God is all essence, all being, and nothing else. This is his divine simplicity. He's not receiving new features to his being. He's not composed of parts. He is pure actuality. There is no potential in God. There's no potential for change or potential for further growth or understanding, but God is always potential maximized, if you will, potential realized. Second would be his his aseity, which is another way of saying his independence. God is completely independent, and he is self-existent. He needs nothing from outside of him to contribute to him or to to change him. Thirdly, one that we're more familiar with would be his immutability, that God is incapable of undergoing change, that God does not change. He does not change in his character. He does not change in his being. He does not change in what he knows. He does not change in what he does. He is pure essence. He is independent. He is self-existent, and he is unchanging in all of his ways. In an extension of this, he is impassable. He not only does not undergo change within himself and in his being, but he does not undergo any sort of emotional change. God is always all of himself all the time. So we tend to speak of God as being, well, he's like in our passage, the wrath of God is being revealed. But it's not as if God is more wrathful at this time than he is at other times. It's not like here he's wrathful, but here he's kind, here he's loving, because God is all of himself all the time, which gets into the next one, his eternality. He is always all of himself all the time. And all of his attributes coexist 100% always. It's just that from our perspective, we only can see and receive certain aspects of his being at certain moments of time. But God is not changing. He's not, he's not angry at one moment and then loving at another moment. He's not wrathful at this moment and then compassionate at this moment. He's always all of himself all the time. He is, this is what it means to be pure being and to be unchanging and eternal. He is eternally always self-existent, unchanging, all of himself. It's just we are not any of those things, and so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around those things. Because if I'm angry, I'm oftentimes not loving. If I'm impatient, I'm, being, I'm not being patient. But that's not the way that God is, because he cannot undergo change. He's always all of himself, all the time. 
and he's eternal. He's always been this way. He will always be this way. There is no potential change for him ever. And he's always completely satisfied in his own beings and perfections. He is, he's incredible, to say the least. And, then, and so why do I mention these things? Because this is the immortal God that man has exchanged for mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's absolutely ridiculous. When you get a glimpse and you start to think about the character of who God is, and we say, yeah, that's so wonderful, but, you know, I'd rather have this cow. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the Exodus, right? Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the word of God. He comes down, and what has his brother Aaron done? They made a golden cow. And Aaron has said, look at the gods that have delivered you out of Egypt. Really? A golden golden cow was walking around Egypt? The golden cow was delivered you out of slavery? The golden cow was there, and he parted the Red Sea. they, They saw, like these people saw and experienced the redemptive power of the of God, like in incredible ways. And they end up worshiping a golden cow that they made out of their own melted bracelets and earrings. You know, Isaiah 44 talks about that as well, how the person chops down a tree, and with part of it, they build a fire to keep themselves warm, and the part of it, they build a fire so they can cook their food on it, and the other part of it, they, they carve and they fashion to an idol, and they bow down to this tree that they cut down, that's cooking their food, that's helping keep them warm. It's like, it's completely asinine. This is the, the impact of sin in our world. And we exchange the glory of the immortal, indestructible, incorruptible, unchanging God for replicas and images that look like, and what's the first one that he mentions? Man. We we love ourselves some self. I don't think we realize how much we love ourselves. Exchange the glory of God for my own glory. I am so great. Exchange the glory of God for the glory of man, birds, animals, creeping things. And so we understand not, so this makes, this helps us make um, not just why God's wrath is being revealed from creation, understandable, but it makes it right. And just as well. Verses 22 and 23, they are the crux. This helps us really understand why the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth about God because what can be known about God has been made plain to them through what it is that he has made, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. When mankind takes that truth, suppresses that truth, exchanges his glory in for a lesser glory, it makes the wrath of God not only understandable but right. And so, why do we do this? Well, I think because maintaining these aspects of God creates dependence upon Him, need of Him, and and, and it cultivates worship. And mankind, we do not like dependence. We like independence. 
We trade those things in and we create independence and autonomy and we lose the awe and the wonder and the worship of who God is. And this is what we are, um, we lose the weight, the weightiness of the glory of God. And this is what the believer is constantly fighting for to maintain within our own lives, our own thinking, our own hearts, to cultivate like true biblical worship. This is what the church, at least North Hills, is in, the, is in the business of fighting for and desiring and maintaining and ministering into the lives of one another to, to keep this vision of the glory of God central and all that we do so that we can, you know, see His glory cover the entire world. And we speak of His glory and we preach the gospel of His glory. I think of one of the, the greatest things that we can do is to get lost in the glory of God. Um, some specific passages I'll give to you to read as we're winding down here. Isaiah chapters 40 through 50. If you've not read those chapters, and you're not familiar with them, go back and read Isaiah 40 through 50 as God continues to promote His own uniqueness and glory and, and majesty. Job chapter 32 through 42, most of us are familiar with the end of the book of Job, but again, it's an oldie but a goodie. Go back and read the way that God describes himself there. If you're looking for a book to read, The Incomparableness of God by George Swinnick. It's a little Puritan paperback. It's like a systematic theology just packed into like 140 pages. It's wonderful. The Incomparableness of God by George Swinnick, and The Glory of Christ by John Owen. Again, just another wonderful book talking about God's goodness and His glory and think, encouraging us to meditate on these things. Lastly, too, just be reminded. Be reminded that there's no true atheist. Paul is opening up this section in Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue to, to work through it over these next couple weeks regarding the place of God's general revelation and how it speaks of Him. And then he carries this argument forward into chapter 2 as well regarding, um, you know, general God, the, um, the general um, moral compass that every person has, the law of God inscribed upon their heart as well. And so God's, so he's going to highlight two areas in which every single person has going on within them that's testifying to the reality and the presence of God. And I think this helps us engage with those who are non-believers. We know these things to be true. We know that they are just suppressing the truth of what can be known about God and our desires to uncover. Let's kick up the dust a little bit about what can be known about God in their lives and in their thinking and help draw their eyes to the reality of who God is and how he's um, revealed himself specifically in the person of Christ. Remember, our goal in, in, in evangelizing and doing missions is not just to prove that God exists and that he's real. They know that. They're suppressing that. Our goal is to see them come to know Christ in a saving way and to see the glory of God revealed and the righteousness of God revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we always want to get to him. And we can do that as we enter into people's worlds and we have discussions with them regarding 
the lives that they live and the things that they're involved in, the things that they think about, the things that they value. All these are opportunities. As people talk and they share things with you, they're, they're revealing information about themselves, and these are all opportunities to make points of contact between them and the redemptive work of Christ. So we think about those things and we keep them in mind as we engage with those around us who don't know the Lord. This is our time where, we're, where those of us who do know the Lord are going to celebrate and worship Him by way of communion. We're reminded specifically of the righteousness of God that's been revealed through Christ as we look to Christ and we partake of communion together now. And so if you're a visitor here and you do know Christ that way, then we do invite for you to partake of communion with us. But if you don't, just, and you've been listening, then think about what's been spoken regarding the glory of God and his call for you to come to him for redemption, for forgiveness of sins, and that he turns away none who come to him by faith. So this is our time to worship and to celebrate. The elements are on the tables behind you. You can get those and return back to your seat. We have some time of prayer and meditation, and then we will partake of the communion elements together here shortly.
communion reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And so as we read along here, our time of communion, we consider what Christ has done for us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this in obedience to the Lord as we remember his work. Remember his body that he offered up on our behalf, that was beaten and bruised and crucified, but then also buried and raised and ascended now where he is seated. And so we partake of the cracker together with humility, with thankfulness as we seek to honor the Lord in this time, but also with all of our lives. And so we partake of the bread together now. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we partake of the juice together. This reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf that does wash us and cleanse us from every stain of sin, that we might continue to struggle with making the exchanges of the glory of God for lesser glories. This body and this blood, this cracker and this juice remind us of God's testimony of faithfulness to us, to keep us and preserve us, to never leave us nor forsake us. And so it's with great, again, gratitude and humility that we partake of the juice together now. Father, we thank you for this time. The gospel is such good news because it's a proclamation not of what it is that we must do or what we have done, but of what it is that you have done for us. And then by faith we rest in the firm and secure work of Christ. And from that, we live a life that is honoring to you. We seek to. We want to live a life that's honoring to you and shows thankfulness and gratitude and is a life of true worship unto you, living sacrifices, Lord. We seek to maintain your glory, God, not only in this time now, but in all of the areas of life. If there is an area of our lives in which we are not first and foremost seeking to make your glory preeminent and known, then forgive us, God, and help us in our weakness to do that and show us how we, how we can because we want to see you magnified and we want to see Christ proclaimed. We regard no one according to the flesh any longer. We want to see people come to know Christ and we want to see you glorified. So help us to do that, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' matchless and wonderful name that we pray all these things. Amen.